Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your love for us each day. And we ask that as we gather this morning, you would speak to our hearts, to our needs, to our situations. And that the power of the cross would do its work in us and amongst us. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. He couldn't quite remember the first time he saw one. He couldn't quite remember, but he could never get the picture out of his mind. He's pretty sure he was young because in the in the memory, he senses that his parents were there. Though the image was so overwhelming, he can no longer recall exactly who was there. And he had that feeling of nausea mixed with fear, mixed with you just can't look away. You know that feeling? Like when you come up on a, a horrific car accident. And you have that feeling of fear mixed with nausea, mixed with can't look away. That that feeling, that's what he felt. He's a little boy. He he can't remember where he was. It must not have been far from home because he never traveled much. But it was the first time he'd seen one. Sometimes at night, he'd try to sleep, and that image would come back, flash through his mind. And he wasn't even sure why. You you ever have those kind of images that sometimes they just sneak up on you and they flash through? Images you can't get out of your head. Images that just won't leave you alone. Haunting images. Those images that make you feel nausea with a bit of fear, but you can't look away. That's what he see. He would see this. You'll never forget, it was a man that he saw. Well, what used to be a man. It was a man who was naked. There had been wild animals that had gnawed on this man. As he hung, hung on that cross. And the reason that this man was there was because he was a leader of an insurrection in their village. He was actually a slave and he had killed his master. And in response, the authorities so that other slaves, because the slaves outnumbered the free people so that the slaves wouldn't get any crazy ideas. They would make an example And it was clear from the little boy that it had been days since he had first been hung there. The body was mangled. The body was cold. The man was gone. He had died. But the image, that image of nausea with fear, but you can't look away, went through his mind. And now it's many years later, and he's, he's in Corinth. He's living there. He's a successful businessman. And there's still these crucifixions that happen. 
There's still insurrections that need to be put down, rebellions that need to be dealt with, like that one that happened at Tyre where they killed 2,000 at once, crucified them along the most popular roadway into town so that everyone would see to make sure to keep them in line. He just happened to be at the synagogue that day. And he heard from this man named Paul. And Paul was saying crazy things about some unknown criminal who had been executed by the state, who'd been crucified outside of Jerusalem. And Paul was saying that this man, this man who had been crucified, this man whose body had hung naked for the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the field to just take apart, though you and I know that didn't happen to him. Paul was saying that this man was the king of the Jewish people. (laughs) Kings don't die that way. Kings don't die along the side of the road after a good beating and perhaps their eyes being burned out. They don't die that way. That's how slaves and criminals, insurrectionists, enemies of the state die. In fact, even Roman citizens, very few, there's been rumors that a handful had been executed in this way by crucifixion, but very few, even Roman citizens, were spared the shame and humility of dying on a cross. Now you're telling me this king... Is this man who died this way? One of the things that we miss when we read the scriptures because we have jewelry and bumper stickers and decorations in churches. We miss the gruesomeness, the shame of the cross. We forget what a cross was about, what it accomplished, what it said. As I was preparing for this sermon today, I read accounts of crucifixions. And let me just tell you, it's not a way any of us want to die. It's a horrific death. The Romans often given credit for perfecting it, but it existed long before the Romans came along. It dates as far back as at least the Persians. The Persians would place their enemies either on a a pole or a pole with a cross beam on it or a tree and just affix a person to it. And they would either tie them to it or you would nail them to this wooden object And most crucifixions, there was a beating beforehand. At least that's what the Romans added. The Greeks would often, before they would burn your eyes out, they would torture your family in front of you as you were nailed 
to this instrument of death. Many would watch their loved ones tortured and beaten as they hung there. Doctors today aren't even sure how crucifixion worked, (laughs) why people died. The wounds inflicted from crucifixion itself, not not a single major organ was damaged in the process. All your vital organs were intact. And many victims were tied to the stake. So there wasn't even a a wound from a nailing. And even if you were nailed, you didn't bleed enough to bleed to death. It was unclear the cause of death. Perhaps it was shock. Some have thought maybe it's asphyxiation as it becomes harder and harder to breathe because of your arms being up above your head or out to your sides. Some victims would last days, perhaps a week. Most victims of crucifixion were hung at a low level so that wild beasts could get at them. It's nothing like the movies. It's worse. There was birds of the air that would come. There was descriptions of giving their body to the birds and the beasts. We've been in this series in 1 Corinthians, and we come to this part of the first chapter where Paul talks about the power of the cross. And don't be don't be naive. The cross had power, but not the type that Paul is talking about. The power of the cross in the ancient world was to keep you in line. To keep you from rebelling. To keep you reminded of who's in charge. And it ain't you. It's the Romans. In fact, it was so effective at quelling rebellion that even the Jews who were stiff-necked, rebellious people, it kept the Jewish people in line until the Jewish war. One of the things that the crucifixion, one of the difficulties, one of the obstacles of the crucifixion was that it was a crucifixion. In the ancient people's minds. Much like the fictional character I told you about. They struggled with believing that somebody who had died this way could really be a somebody. They struggled with the stumbling block as Paul calls it in this passage. Or how the Greeks saw it. The foolishness of the crucifixion. If you join me in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Verse 18, hear these words. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, and Paul quotes Jeremiah, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise 
The intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where are the wise? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let those who boast, boast in the Lord. This is dense. (laughs) This is meaty material. Paul, did you hear how often he talks about foolishness and wisdom and strength, and weakness. And what Paul's doing in this passage is he is contrasting the wisdom of the world with the wisdom of God. He's contrasting the wisdom of the world with the wisdom of God. And many of us, in this day and age, as we watch television, or the internet, or all these kinds of things, you see a parade of the wisdom of the world before your very eyes all the time. You see it constantly. You especially see it during an election year. The wisdom of the world. Now, just for fun. Did you hear what Paul said about God's wisdom? It looks like foolishness to worldly wisdom. It looks like foolishness to worldly wisdom. There is a foolishness to God's wisdom when you look at it through human eyes. To pick a crucified Messiah, to pick that way of death, to pick that time on the planet, to go about salvation in the way he has done it. Could you imagine the political campaign of this type of candidate? Vote for me. I'll die in a year for your sins. Vote for me. The rest of the world will spit on me, mock me, beat me, think I'm a pushover. But I will achieve salvation of the world. Vote for me. Our community will turn the other cheek and welcome the stranger. Vote for me. Anybody voting for that guy? 
Anybody following that guy? Anybody attracted to that guy? It looks like weakness. It looks like foolishness. And it always has. These are not surprising revelations. If it's surprising to you, you just haven't read 1 Corinthians, which says plainly that the cross is foolishness to those who are, what did it say? Perishing. Perishing. What's perishing? Christ said the world is perishing. It's going to pass away. People who don't place their faith in Christ are perishing. It's not that they're dead yet. They're dead in their sins, but they're going to be dead forever. There won't be life after life after death. There will only be death after life. The perishing see this as foolishness. Have you ever felt that? Have you ever been in a situation where the words that come out of your mouth or the thoughts that are in your head, you're like, if I were to say this out loud to this group of people, they'd think I'm foolish. If I were to say out loud, the hope of the world is Jesus, these people would mock if I, were to, if I were to affirm my faith in Christ at this moment, these people would think, oh, you're one of them. And they would look at me like I'm just a little bit off and perhaps I'm a little crazy and I'm just a little wrong. If you've experienced that, you've experienced this passage and you've experienced Paul and what he's trying to say here. And what's going on in Corinth is there was these divisions amongst those in the church. And Paul was such a bad preacher, he literally preached somebody to death once. The guy got so bored, he fell out the window and died. Fortunately, there was an apostle there. They were able to rise him from the dead. If you fall out of something because I'm boring and die, no guarantees. You might just enter into the presence of Jesus and you'll be like, wow, I should have done this a long time ago. (laughs) But he was so boring compared to Apollos, perhaps compared to Peter. People died of boredom when Paul spoke. And he even makes a point in chapter 2, the beginning here, and he says, and it's so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence. (laughs) He's self-aware. You know, unlike those people who audition on American Idol, those unself-aware people, but Simon Cowell, thank God for Simon Cowell. The world needs more Simon Cowells. I mean, you might go, oh, that's just mean and nasty. Hey, did you enjoy any of those people? Aren't you glad they're not cutting albums, playing them on the radio? I mean, the world does not need more folks who aren't self-aware. It needs people who are self-aware. And Paul was self-aware. Yeah, I'm boring. A guy died when I preached once. And it's in the Bible. Yeah, I'm not the most eloquent. 
I didn't come to you with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaim to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Still works this way. It still works this way. You see, when the cross of Christ is preached, it's still seen as foolishness by the scientific-minded It's still seen as weakness by the strong. But somehow when the cross of Christ is preached, life change happens. Communities of people whose hearts are changing by the Holy Spirit form. Some people are able to overcome addictions. Some marriages are put back together. Some families are knitted back together. Relationships are healed when the cross of Christ is preached. What's on display in the cross of Christ? Paul tells us it's the power of God. The power of God is on display. What power do you want to see What kind of power do you want a community of people to rally around? What kind of change do you want to see in your life, in your world, in your nation? Does anyone promise this type of change? This type of power? Out of this type of foolishness? Out of this type of weakness? You know, it's still true that when the power of Christ, the power of God intervenes in people's lives, they change. You know me. I've been here 13 years. I'm, I'm somewhat of a skeptic. I'm somewhat cynical. There are times I wrestle with, is God doing anything? with me, with any of us, here, at all. I think it's human nature. And when I find myself in those places, you know what I should do? I should come to this passage. I should come back to this passage and I should remind myself, oh yeah, the world sees this as foolishness. Oh yeah, the world sees this as weakness. Oh yeah, lots of people see this as a stumbling block. Lots of people have a problem with this message. It shouldn't surprise me. It shouldn't surprise me that the back door of the church is as big as the front door of the church. It shouldn't surprise me that to follow a crucified Savior is hard. It shouldn't surprise me. And I just, I marvel that I'm surprised. 
this passage. This passage should ground me. It should ground us. The cross is the power of God. That preaching Christ crucified is the way to build and grow people and a church. Just this past week, the Presbyterian Church USA has had its general assembly. I used to be, well, I wasn't quite a pastor in their midst because they didn't ordain me, but they tolerated me. I was allowed to be a pastor. I was actually what they called stated pulpit supply. That was my official relationship with the Presbyterian Church USA. While I served a church here in Ray for about five years. This past week at the Presbyterian Church USA at their general assembly to open up their time together as the Presbyterian Church USA, they had a Muslim imam offer the opening prayer. They voted time and time again on initiatives that are just contrary to what this book says. Time and time again, they voted things. And and what they're trying to do, I think what they're trying to do, I was around some of them, I think I know. They're trying to be unoffensive, welcoming, relevant. When I started out here in Ray, the Presbyterian Church USA, the national membership was 2.5 million people. Today at their meeting, they're expecting by 2020 to be 1.2 million people. Relevancy works. Being unoffensive works. Adopting the wisdom of the world, boy, it'll really help you. It'll, it'll just, it'll bring them in. Why is the Presbyterian Church USA dying? Now, Perhaps some of my PCUSA friends will listen to this online. Perhaps some of my friends who are in mainline churches will listen to this when we put it online. They'll be offended at what I have to say. They're not preaching Christ. They're not depending on the power of the cross, which is foolishness to those who are perishing. They want to be liked. You ever wanted to be liked? I mean, some of you, you're long over that, I know. I mean, but some of us still like to be liked, at least in certain circles. Some of us want to have folks, when they think about us, go, oh, I like them. I like them. Some of us want them to go a step further and go, oh, I respect them. Some of us want to have them go a step further and go, they're brilliant. They're amazing. They're cool. They're awesome. Whatever that is, that's something in us that all of us want, is we want others to like us, respect us, think we're brilliant. And that's the rub of this section in 1 Corinthians. Because Paul Think about it. This is in the context of an argument in the church, a popularity contest. 
And Paul says, hey, I'm okay with losing this popularity contest so long as you understand why I was here so that you would know Christ and him crucified. Paul says, I'm willing to lose this popularity contest, but this is a stupid contest because you should only be thinking of Christ. You should only be paying attention to Christ. You should only be focused on the cross of Christ because it is the power of God. What are we focused on? Sometimes I lose my way. Sometimes I focus on the wrong thing. Sometimes I read a book and it makes me go, ooh, ooh, that's a brilliant idea. That could really help us. That could really help us grow. That could really help us do this. That could really help us do that. And I am becoming more and more and more and more convinced as I read more and more things that friends of mine share with me, email me, send me. The church is losing home field advantage. The cross of Christ is becoming less and less tolerated by the culture at large. And that more and more to place our faith in Christ and Him crucified and His resurrection is being seen as foolishness and a stumbling block. There's a quote by C.T. Studd, I've talked about before. He said, there's no place for mamby-pamby Christians in the kingdom of God. I love that. And it's quoted, and the guy's name was Studd, too. There's no place for mamby-pamby Christians. And I believe that as we lose home field advantage, as the church becomes more and more marginalized in our society, just this past week I became aware of a bill in California where they're planning on removing religious exemptions for uh, college and universities where they can no longer discriminate on who they hire based on faith. And it's going to do away, if this is passed, it'll do away completely with Christian higher education in the state of California outside of seminaries. Places like Westmont College, where I had good friends go to. Places like uh, Biola, thank you. They won't exist in the same way they exist. And I don't know. I guess we could get all mad and crazy and contact the powers of this world. We could call our representatives. We could write angry notes. We could go and pick it. We could rely on the methods and wisdom of this world. But how has the church always grown? In a few weeks, you'll hear from Mike how the church has grown in China. And the way it's grown is by the preaching of the cross of Christ, the power of God. It hasn't grown through political movements. It hasn't grown because of best-selling books. It hasn't grown because of dynamic preachers and preaching and big churches. It's grown because of the power of the cross to change 
people's lives. So we've reached the end. We, we've reached that application part. Well, how does this have to do with me? You know, like those kids in math class. Science class. When am I ever going to use this? How does this apply to my life? This is stupid. Even my dad says he got through another day without using algebra. Are you going to get through another day without using the power of the cross? You're going to get through another day without applying the power of the cross to your life, to your family, to your situations, to your work, to your environment, to your home? Are you going to get through another day without the power of the cross? Because you can and you have. The vast majority of your days you probably did. But are you going to allow the power of the cross to now shape you? In the first century, when you could walk down one of the main roads and see a crucifixion, when you could walk by a bloodied, beaten, mangled body, and you could pray there, but by the grace of God go I. But you could also, you could also quickly follow it up with, Jesus said, Take up your cross. Follow me. Do you think Jesus knew what he was talking about? Perhaps they were walking on a road. They walked by somebody who had expired from crucifixion, and Jesus goes, Hey, take up your cross and follow me. What's your initial response? A bit of nausea mixed with fear and a feeling like you can't look away? Imagine the cost of these early followers. It wasn't just an hour on Sundays. It wasn't just trying to figure out how to be nice to people who are a good citizen. It was, I might end up like him. Church tradition teaches us that all but one of his 12 initial followers ended up like him. Church tradition teaches, because sometimes Romans got bored with just a run-of-the-mill crucifixion. So when they would do 2,000 at a time, they would sometimes pin them up on trees in interesting ways. And church tradition tells us that Peter was crucified upside down, and he actually knew it was coming because Jesus told him it was coming. He said, one day you will be led out to a place you do not want to go by those who you don't want leading and they there will crucify you. Peter's response? What about him? Is it going to be worse for him? What's your response? What's your response when you hear Jesus say, take up your cross and follow me? If you have fear and nausea 
then you understand that saying, Christianity's not for mamby-pamby people. Christianity's for studs. It's not the wisdom of the world that will change you. It's not a Tony Robbins seminar. It's not Franklin Covey's habits of highly successful people. It's not the latest, greatest guru that Oprah brings on TV. It's not anybody that Dr. Oz can tell you about. It's nothing that Dr. Phil will help you with. Your hope, the thing that will change you, is the person of Jesus Christ, the gospel. And if it hasn't, why not? If it has, is its work done? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that today, as we think about the crucifixion, as Paul talked about it so much in his writings that when we come to it it wouldn't just be that little charm that hangs off of the bracelet that little charm that adorns the back of our car or the decoration at the top of the churches in town that we would remember this is how criminals died and it was gruesome And when we read about it in the scriptures, we would think that that's how they thought. We would be reminded of that, Holy Spirit. And in it, we would see the cost of following Christ. More than that, we would see the guts of our Savior. We would see the guts of Paul the Apostle. We would see the bravery of Peter. And that would invigorate us that one day we could be named amongst the saints in glory who followed you, who picked up their cross no matter the cost. Holy Spirit, make it so. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. That's what you need when you bear a cross. Bear it well. By the power of God. Amen.